We are starting the show, though, talking about a major case. This is the Supreme Court of Canada ruling involving health care in this country. Two Vancouver private health facilities for patients argued that the provisions of the Medicare Protection Act violated their constitutional rights due to the long waits they were seeing for care in the publicly funded system. They said that it amounted to a breach of the patient's life, liberty and security of the person under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The Supreme Court of B.C. had already dismissed the constitutional challenge three years ago, and the Provincial Court of Appeal upheld that ruling last year. We now have this ruling from the Supreme Court of Canada. And joining me to talk more about what this means is Dr. Brian Day, the owner of the Canby Surgery Centre. Dr. Day, thank you so much for taking some time today. Oh, you're welcome. What does this mean for the future of your clinic? Well, no, it doesn't. It, our clinic will carry on the way way it has been doing, which is not treating um, patients from other provinces and patients who are exempted. But I mean, I just want to be clear that the the Supreme Court of Canada has refused to even hear the case. It's not they haven't ruled against the case. They've said they won't hear it, and this is appalling, really. I mean, we have a health system that's in a crisis, and. Um, this, the Supreme Court of Canada has, is failing to even consider the rights of Canadians suffering on, on wait lists, such as the patient plaintiffs in our case, who suffered outcomes such as permanent paralysis and death as they waited for both care and justice. And so, so the, the, the important thing to, to understand here is even the BC Court of Appeal ruled that BC patients were suffering and dying as they wait. And um, and um, the Supreme Court decision not to even hear the case undermines the politicization that the, of our justice system that's that's now even less independent than the U.S. Supreme Court. We, we, I mean, this is a, a court that in 2005 gave, gave Quebecers the right to private insurance and 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 the safety valve, and yet they declined to even consider whether Canadians who don't live in Quebec should have the same rights that they gave to Quebecers. They should have at least heard whatever your thoughts on pros and cons. Uh, the fact that they don't even want to hear it uh, speaks to the politicization. And, and indeed, the judges in question are federal employees and exempt from the prohibitions and they are free to access private health care when they wish. I've personally, our clinic has personally received payment for judges funded for private care by the federal government. And so this decision is being made by judges and politicians who aren't affected by the law. They, they like federal prisoners and federal judges and politicians, including the prime minister and his family, uh, may indeed and do freely and legally accept um, timely health care privately for themselves. So this is, um, I think it's important to say, this is a law that no other country in the world has. So it's only in Canada, and in Canada, it's only outside of Quebec that such a law exists. So this is a very serious um, failure of our judicial system. It's a, it's a failure of the health system that nobody can deny. And as I said, even the BC Court of Appeal in our um, trial overruled the, low, the Supreme Court, the BC Supreme Court judge, and said he was wrong and that patients are suffering and dying on wait lists. And so, um, as I said, I'm, I'm shocked um, 
We know from data collected, um, uh, thanks to Kai High uh, Canadian Institute government information, that 11,500 patients a year, uh, 11,500 patients died on waitlist in 2021. Those patients are sentenced to a lifetime on a waitlist with no legal recourse unless they leave the country, which, of course, is what the wealthy do. The wealthy, um, wealthy Canadians and politicians can go down to Mayo Clinics and Cleveland Clinics in the U.S. and get instant health care, and, and they do. Uh, so in refusing to hear this case, then, does it does it take it back, though, to, to the appeal court? Because the, the Court of Appeal, did it not uphold? I thought it upheld the, the lower court ruling that was the dismissal of the challenge. It upheld it based on, um, on the, you know, the appeal court did not go into the trial evidence. So that the, the Supreme Court judge um, did not, in, in Quebec, both the lower court and the appeal court um, upheld uh, the government's right. But the Supreme Court of Canada said, well, we want to hear this case. In, in, so the same thing happened in BC, but they don't want to hear it. So as I said, the, the most outrageous thing to me is that this is the same court that gave Quebecers the right that they are now not even, don't, won't even consider whether um, whether. Canadians that don't live in Quebec should have the same rights. And I think that is something that the public should be concerned about. This is, um, this is uh, discrimination against people who live outside Quebec. To not even hear the case um, is, uh, to me, um, shocking. And, um, and, 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 you know, I do want to emphasize there is no jurisdiction in the world that outlaws um, a citizen's right to get private access to care, when the gov- especially when the government doesn't doesn't uh, supply it. And there's no there's no uh, requirement for the government to to supply the care when you need it. They just supply it when they want to give it. And sometimes that involves people suffering and dying on waitlist. And the appeal court in BC overruled the lower court judge and said, yes, people in BC are suffering and dying, and dying on weightless. So how do you respond then when we see people who are applauding this decision, uh, certainly groups that were interveners, the health minister has issued a statement saying that this, that he is very pleased by this decision and then went on to say that uh, that 99% of the patients who saw procedures postponed during the pandemic have now had their surgeries done, uh, really touting the fact that a lot of progress is being made. Well, that's an absolute lie, and I can say that publicly because we have data to show that, well, what he's saying is that people cancel during the first month or two. But you, you will, you will, if you look at the data, which the government won't release in, in the court trial, for instance, patients with serious cancers, some of the patients with, um, with serious cancer, like of the cervix and, and uh, were only 13% were being treated in the maximum safe time that the government themselves had designated. So this is absolutely false, uh, false statement that patients are suffering and dying on waitlists. And the appeal court of British Columbia has said that. So um, they are, he, uh, you know, they are saying, 
that they are right to say that because it's happening. As I said, data across Canada shows 11,500 died in 2021 on a wait list with no legal right to get themselves off the wait list. Now, the wealthy just head down to the United States, to the to the you know, Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic. It's ordinary Canadians that don't. And what we were fighting for is the right to have extended health premiums of the type that 70% of Canadians have that cover dentistry and physiotherapy and prescription drugs extended to cover patients who are waiting beyond the maximum safe time. So what what's happening now is the majority of patients are waiting well past the safe time, the, it's the maximum acceptable safe time. The, the government, the BC government, describes that as the recommended time. Well, a year or two for a hip replacement in an elderly patient limping around is not the recommended time. It's the maximum time. But the government is misleading the public by calling that recommended. It's not recommended. It's the maximum acceptable. The maximum acceptable time, according to the Canadian Orthopedic Association for a hip or knee replacement, is three months. And very few Canadians, and certainly in BC, are getting a hip or knee replacement within three months. But as I said, this applies to cancers, serious cancer patients. The majority are not being treated in the maximum safe time. Their cancers are spreading while they are forced to wait wait without any legal recourse. And again... And, 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 and I think I need to emphasize that the judges and the federal politicians and the judges that, that won't hear this case are exempt. I mean, this is basically... Uh, them sitting on a court saying, well, yes, I have it. I have access to private health care, but we're not going to even hear and consider whether ordinary Canadians should have the same rights. Uh, so what do you do from this point on with the, the Supreme Court, the highest court in Canada, saying it's not going to hear the case? So what, what does, is this the end of the legal road for you, or what happens oh, next? Yes. This is the end of the legal road for us. Um, I mean, you know, it's not our role to to fix what the, the mess that the politician, politicians have made of our, our health system. I mean, we, you, you, again, Canadian Institute for Health Information, a federal-funded body together with the Commonwealth Fund, looked at 10 highly developed countries in the world that have universal health care. Canada came in last in access and last in equity and first in cost. And these are all countries that have an option, a safety valve, and more or less, and, and what I would describe as a compare, something to compare the status quo to. So what, what happens in this monopoly, because Canada is the only country in the world that operates a monopoly in the funding and, develop, and delivery of uh, medical care, um, is, is, it's also the worst performer and the most expensive. So something is not right. So now it's in the hands of politicians. And the politicians can now, you know, I, I was in a debate a few years ago with the Quebec health minister. And he said to me, um, he's no longer the Quebec health minister, so I can quote this now. He said to me after the debate, he said, off the record, every health minister in the country wants you to win this case because they don't want to deal with it. Hmm. Well, it's a very interesting development in what has been a lengthy, lengthy case. Dr. Day, we're going to have to leave it there for today, but I appreciate you joining us to talk more about it. You're welcome.
As you know, we have been following along with the clearing of tents and other parts of that encampment on East Hastings Street. Started yesterday and crews are continuing with that today. One of the main reasons given was safety and safety concerns in that area. Well, joining us now to talk a little bit more about this is Chief Karen Fry with Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services. Chief Fry, thank you so much for making some time today. Thanks, Jill. I appreciate you having me on here. Uh, how would you sum up or, or, or summarize kind of how things went yesterday? Uh, for the most part, um, you know, happy with the progress that, that's been made. Um, from from what I understand, we had a lot of outreach workers out there uh, that engage a lot of people who, who um, moved their belongings or uh, found or stored their belongings. And again, uh, many of them took them up on some shelter spaces as well. And can you take us back a little bit? I know we talked about this before and the, the, your department has been quite vocal in talking about the safety concerns and why this move was necessary. But can you take us through again what it was specifically about this encampment that led to the decision to be made, uh, your department being part of this with the city to take it down? Yeah, you're right. So back in July of last year, starting to recognize we were seeing an increasing number of fires and fires on the outside of buildings and and uh, tents that what tents and structures that were blocking fire department connections, blocking exits to building and entrances, and was creating such a formidable fire risk uh, that something needed to be done. And and during that time and and over the last eight months or so. Uh, the engineering department, um, the the provincial government have all stepped up and they're really working hard to try and reduce the load and reduce the risk by by encouraging people to leave, by doing daily walkthroughs and removing propane tanks. Um, and in the last uh, several weeks and, and months, we have just continued to see it escalate even more. Uh, we've had huge fires uh, the one on Columbia Street that was uh, with propane bottles that were found on site. And we've had, um, uh, that was the Imperial Palace or the Imperial uh, Theater one. We've had ones at Columbia Street last weekend where we couldn't get access, uh, proper access to fight the fire because of tents. Uh, we've had encampments where they've um, had tent fires and blown up. It's been ongoing, and we're just continually seeing an increase. It's not reducing. It's actually getting worse. We heard from the mayor and as well as the police chief about police officers being assaulted and being hurt. Has that also happened to firefighters? Yeah, it definitely it's happened to firefighters. Uh, we've been assaulted. We've been threatened with violence. We've been threatened with weapons. Um, even when we were responding the other day to the fire on the corner of Hastings in Columbia, somebody was throwing, uh, hit, hit one of our responding chiefs with a stick on his vehicle. So it is a lot of unprovoked attacks and, and there is a lot of risk, not even apart from the fires, which is my main concern, but we also respond to a lot of overdoses and medical responses in that area. And, uh, a lot of the times when we're entering into a tent, uh, it's very precarious and uh, dangerous for our staff when we're not sure what we're going to come 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 into when we're responding in there.
Uh, I know the city put out some updated information saying that some people had accepted shelter space. There was a lot of confusion yesterday as to what spaces might be available and where people are are going to go. Uh, I think even if everybody in that encampment was offered a shelter space, we know not everybody is going to take one. How concerned are you that these tents are going to pop up a block away in a park, simply moving to another area? Yeah, I think that's somewhat inevitable. We know that not everybody is going to accept housing, even if there is housing or or shelter space available. We will have people that choose to shelter outdoors and create create their homes there. Um, But against buildings is really one of the most dangerous situations that I have seen in encampments. Uh, We expect that people will shelter outdoors in parks where they can put up a a tent overnight with some limitations. I expect that that's going to happen, uh, but we will be diligent in in addressing ones that are against buildings and creating, creating fires against buildings. Do you think that there's a role, and I know this isn't the fire department's role, but but because there has been so much conversation about the fact that a lot of people are choosing to live in a tent on the street because it feels safer and cleaner than a lot of the SROs that have been allowed to get into a state of disrepair. We hear about them being infested with rodents, not having working plumbing, really, really not desirable places to live. Surely places like that, and we've seen, as you mentioned, mentioned as well, we've seen fires on the downtown east side. It seems that we've seen quite a number of them in the last few months. The fact that these buildings have been allowed to fall into such a state of disrepair, is that not part of the problem? You know, I think there's it's a really complex issue. And I think the, the, the number of housing units available and whether they're SROs, and I think I heard my boss yesterday saying we account for 20 percent of the population but 75 percent of the low-income housing and low barrier housing in the province and and you're absolutely right you know this year alone we are we have been proactive with uh, our SROs as far as fire safety because we also recognize those are a huge risk in our city and uh, we have been uh, and inspected every SRO at least once this year already which is generally something we can't get to till near the end of the year. And so we're making it a priority to address the fire safety risks within them. Uh, We're also partnering quite a bit with BC Housing and working with them on trying to address some of our major concerns uh, regarding fire safety and the SROs. So when you're inspecting them, having inspected every SRO at least once, do they generally pass or what kind of things do you find? They generally don't pass. Uh, I, I don't have all the details yet, but what I do know is that we're going to find that, that there are certain things that most likely that people may be using open flames in, in their in, in their building or in their rooms, that there's uh, high loads of combustible materials in their in their rooms, that there may be doors propped open. Um, so fire doors are meant to actually stop the spread of fire from from a room into the hallway and then into the, and up and down the stairs. And a lot of times those are propped open or locked. So we will work with them uh, to ensure that they are are maintained properly. Uh, this year as well, council also granted some funding uh, to do some local fire wardens and some of the private SROs. So it's more of a peer based accountability or training system so so they can help share the fire safety messages with the residents in the buildings and so we're trying that as a pilot and I wish I had all the answers but like I said this is 
this is something that is really complex. And when we have at-risk individuals living in in a building um, without really hard-to-house individuals with a lot of uh, risky behaviors, um, including electric bikes, right? We need to change uh, storage storage requirements around a lot of those electric bikes. But when something, so if an SRO doesn't pass inspection, what happens at that point then? Because presumably it's not somebody that's in a position to have repairs done or, or we're seeing that, that they often don't get done in these in these scenarios. So if someone, if a building doesn't pass, what happens to make sure it is brought to a place where it does pass? Yeah, so it's kind of a, a bit of a process. So under the fire code, we'd normally go back and set what we need Um, what needs to be put into compliance, whether it's having a system addressed, uh, if it's like a sprinkler system needs to be updated or or, um, inspected. So we will go back and ensure them within the timeline that it's done, that then are followed up with fines, and then eventually it'll get to a state of uh, where where the city, um, under the the bylaws, will um, take them to court. Right. And so, so it's a like you said, it's a, there's a whole lot going on here. It's part of a much a much more complex problem. Yes, it is a very complex problem. But you know, I think one thing's for sure, and and unfortunately, probably uh, with the Winters Hotel fire nearly a year ago, we we rec- people recognize it that that the fire systems are critical to have them up and running and and a lot of the behaviors that are occurring in these SROs need to be addressed, including um, people smoking and the storage of bikes and everything else in those rooms. And, and Chief, something else that came up yesterday when we were talking with one of the, the community organizers and he had said that they had done a campaign and I think we can all agree that it's still not ideal or anywhere close to, but they had done a campaign to make sure people living in tents had a fire extinguisher and knew how to use a fire extinguisher should there be a fire. And again, I know that it's it's not, nobody wants an encampment, nobody want, thinks that that's a permanent solution. Is that at least something that's being done to help mitigate some of those fire dangers? Yeah, that, that mitigates a little bit of stopping, uh, stopping a fire, a small fire, uh, if it's recognized and and. Um, seen right away and that's something that we did early on um, after the fire chief's order but again like we have had uh, 61 tent fires since the order went on in the downtown east side 61 so obviously they haven't that everybody having a fire extinguisher around or knowing how to use it isn't worked when when you're using a large amount of combustibles and explosive materials, including propanes or fires inside tents, um, a fire extinguisher may work if it's small, but it's not it's not going to put out anything that's going big, and it definitely hasn't protected the buildings that where we've had large fires. All right, Chief Karen Fry, thank you so much again for coming on the show today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Have a good day.
Some new research put out by the Angus Reid Institute shows that Canadians are cutting back when it comes to things like discretionary spending, but they are going even further, finding that penny pinching isn't enough and they're having to find other creative ways to make ends meet. So we wanted to find out a little bit more about this research. Joining us to talk more about that is the president of the Angus Reid Institute, Shachi Curl. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. This is interesting on how people are coping. But before we get to what people are doing, you were asking Canadians how they're feeling. And I know one of the the answers was in terrible shape, barely getting by all the way to in great shape. What are you finding from people? Well, in terms of the number in terrible shape uh, who, who say, you know, that they're barely getting by, that remains at a, a stubborn 10%. Of Canadians, uh, it's about 11% in British Columbia. Definitely disproportionate in terms of income levels. Obviously, if you're making fewer than $50,000 a year in annual household income, you're definitely saying that you're barely getting by. Younger people and women more likely to also identify as uh, being in, in really rough shape. And it underscores a trend that we've been seeing now for, for well more than a year, Jill, where um, the, the age and the time of, of extra pandemic money, low interest rates, has come to an end. And uh, for those particularly on the, on the lower end of household income, you know, everyone is sh- telling us that they're feeling a squeeze in terms of the higher cost of living, but it's those people with the least wiggle room who are, you know, obviously, but importantly, having the worst time of it. I found it interesting, too, uh, when you talk about in this that uh, we all know about the, it's called the grocery rebate, although it can be used for anything in the last budget. But people really saying, yes, that's going to be helpful. It's welcome, but they're not seeing any other kind of relief or, or any other additional compensation, say, from employers. That's right. I mean, it's it's been, depending on the, the type of business that you're in or that you own, if you're an employer, this has been a challenging year as well around labor shortages, paying a premium for extra. But at the same time, to your point, a lot of people are indicating that they have not seen a raise. Uh, although the, the people, and unfortunately, the, the people least likely to say that and report that are those likely in, in most need of it. So if you work in the sales and service or retail or hospitality sector, fewer than half say that they received a raise in the last 12 months. And compare that to, say, two-thirds of people in the knowledge or creative sector or almost 60% in, in IT or in skilled trades. Uh, we know then that people already towards the bottom of that income spectrum are also most likely to say, I haven't seen a lift in the last year. What about what people are doing? Because I found this interesting, too, in that it's one thing to maybe defer a contribution to an RSP or a tax-free savings account. But we're seeing people, or at least people that responded to you in this, are going even further. Yes, and I would say for me, this is one of the real key takeaways of, of these data that we've put out today. Because as you know, we've been tracking this issue for a while now. And, and the number of people who say, you know, they're cutting back on discretionary spending or they're putting off a trip or they're putting off a big purchase. We've seen that fairly consistently and in fairly high numbers for a long time. What What is now standing out is the 13% of Canadians, almost one in seven, 
who say that they've borrowed money from friends and family. Uh, the 10%, the one in 10 who say that they've sold an asset. So whether it's a car that they've sold or stocks, if they had stocks or some other asset that they needed to get rid of in order to make ends meet uh, and meet their bills and expenses, they're starting to sell things. Uh, we even see 8% who have taken out a loan from the bank and 4% who've gone to a, a payday company. Now, these numbers may not sound really high, but when you translate that into the Canadian population, you're talking about millions of Canadians who have now transitioned from what can I save by not spending to what do I have to divest or where else do I have to go in order to make ends meet? And that's significant, I would say it's drastic and it's a number I'm going to watch over time. Is that a shift, would you say as well, from what you've seen that that an action that people are taking that maybe when you asked people five years ago, that wasn't what we were seeing even in, in very small percentages? I wish I had the tracking from five years ago, Jill. Five years ago, it feels like a, a different lifetime in, in many ways when we think about what was happening with the economy, what was happening with borrowing rates, what was happening with the cost of, of things. It was a time of unprecedented cheap buying and cheap borrowing. Um, and we're definitely not in that time now. So the long answer to that uh, and the short answer to that are both the same. It's I don't have that data, but I wish I did. And uh, Shachi, just looking at this as well uh, across the country, was was it similar when you looked at different provinces or uh, did it really kind of go, as we know, the cost of living in BC or in Ontario, different places can be much higher. Did you notice changes in, in different parts of the country? Well, what I would say is that um, in terms of suffering, we see a couple of things. Uh, p- people in Saskatchewan most likely to say they're either in bad shape or terrible shape, a combination of that. And in Atlantic Canada, where 45% say they're either in bad or terrible shape. BC, we, we see the numbers that have been fairly consistent, about one in three saying they're in bad or terrible shape. But it's those other provinces that I really look at and try to understand what's happening. We know, for example, that uh, people in Saskatchewan are, are uh, struggling more. What's going on with them? Um, you know, they're, you're, you're dealing with higher levels, particularly of child poverty in, in that province. Uh, in Atlantic Canada, you have an aging population. You've got um, labor shortages, which means that if you're a business owner, for example, you're maybe having to put off an expansion, which is which is also squeezing people. Uh, and you've got real um, problems in terms of access to health, access to income, access to economic growth. So, uh, you know, in BC, it's it's not the prettiest picture. It's certainly worse than it is in Quebec or Ontario, for example, but it's not as bad as it is in other parts of the country. All right. Very interesting findings in this for sure. Shachi Curl, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this. Thanks for having me. There are now some changes when it comes to restrictions for visitors at long-term care or assisted living facilities or other healthcare facilities as well. We're at a point now where we can change some of the restrictions in healthcare settings, in particular, uh, lifting the visitor proof of vaccine, vaccine um, requirements and the rapid antigen test requirements before entering a long-term care assisted living home and some other healthcare facilities. Um, and removing the mandatory universal mask wearing in all healthcare settings. 
That was Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking just a short time ago. Joining us now is Dan Levitt, the CEO of Kin Village. Dan, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Hi, Jill. Great to be here again. Oh, this is a big change, and it's something that's been in place for quite some time. So what kind of an impact do you think this will have? Oh, I think it makes a tremendous impact. Um, when other restrictions were lifted earlier on in the pandemic, uh, we said that we were kind of taking the lock off the front door. And uh, now I feel like we are taking, you know, the the we're unlocking all of our doors, um, our side doors, our back door. Um, now family members can come and go freely. Visitors can come and go. Uh, there's really no restrictions any longer in, in the way that we understood them during the pandemic. Uh, this really is uh, returning as much as possible to the way things were before the pandemic. With the lifting of the the proof of vaccine and the the rapid antigen test, how onerous was that for long-term care facilities and assisted living facilities? Well, I think it was definitely onerous for the operators, um, having staff um, and dedicating space to do that and making sure that that space was kind of quarantined until we knew for sure that the people were safe to enter. Um, and we put some, some major resources into that, and it was needed, and it definitely served a purpose. I think the real onus and or onerous aspect of it was on the family members. Um, in order to visit somebody in long-term care and assisted living, you had to take extra time and to be prepared to, to sit through that. And all of us who have been through that during the pandemic, it's really not something we desired to do or really wanted to do, but knew we had to do it for the good of others. And now people can really um, come and go much more freely. And uh, really that that front door, um, they don't have to sign in anymore. They can just come right in and have their visit. And it'll really change the whole dynamic of what it means to visit your loved one living in care. And what about the the changes then as far as uh, there will only be mask requirements in some designated areas in healthcare or in certain situations? Yeah, exactly. So um, masks are only going to be required uh, where it's specifically necessary for, we call it a point of care risk assessment. So it's assessment that the healthcare workers will make, usually the nurse, and they'll, they'll think that that particular um, risk to, to anybody else, it might be um, that somebody has an infection or maybe they have certain symptoms or even the kind of interaction they're having with um, the resident uh, where you are in very close proximity. That's where a mask will be required. And it'll be really on um, a one-to-one um, assessment um, where that risk is there. Otherwise, um, we won't see masks being worn, um, certainly not during uh, the next six months when we're not in the respiratory season. How has it been in long-term care or in assisted living? Uh, I know the health minister and Dr. Bonnie Henry talked about uh, the uh, respiratory system uh, season and where we saw the peaks and that. How has it been for residents uh, during, uh, during this time when we do see more illness? Well, we're still seeing cases um, of uh, COVID and, and other respiratory um, illnesses, and it's still having an impact on people because once once it's going on, those people still have to, um, they're isolated. We still have to quarantine them. We still have to take those kind of measures we always have been doing. But the you know the the good news is that as we all know the the impact the severe illness we're not seeing that as much um, the kind of um, the unfortunate nine numbers of deaths we saw early on in the pandemic we're not seeing that so it really has has changed um, it's not the same way it used to be we're not calling these outbreaks anymore um, the whole dynamic has has shifted and the fact that we're now um, in springtime and the respiratory season's over, we're not seeing the same cases of influenza, RSV, and COVID like we were. So this is um, very welcomed and we're, we're thrilled that uh, we're now in the springtime and summer and seeing um, that this is all going to be back to normal the way we kind of would like it to be. 
Uh, do you think there will be any concerns uh, about safety? Or are there people that maybe came to appreciate these added layers of protection and liked having them in place? Absolutely. And people are going to ask the questions of, of well, staff are still required to be vaccinated, but not visitors. That doesn't seem fair. People are going to say things like that. But, you know, as, as we heard in the press conference from Dr. Bonnie Henry, um, the fact that healthcare workers are vaccinated, that makes a huge difference. And you know, um, most of us have been advocating for vaccinations for, for healthcare workers for a long time. And we saw that during influenza season where, where we knew um, there were cases that didn't have to happen, but they happened because um, we weren't mandatorying vaccination for for healthcare workers. Now this is going to change. So there are people who will still wear masks. There'll be people who kind of wish these uh, measures weren't lifted, but it is the right thing to do. Um, It's been a long time coming and we're thrilled that um, this is happening today. And exactly, and that's. I think that is one of the questions that that came out. I'm not sure if it was asked at the news conference or not, but certainly that is one of the questions. Is going to be that it seems not not quite fair. I guess is the word that, like you said, so visitors no longer have to show proof of vaccination, but healthcare workers do. Are there workers that that you know of that would like to come back that aren't vaccinated, therefore can't? Yeah, there are definitely people out there that. Um for whatever reason, did not get vaccinated, and uh, they're not working in healthcare any, any longer. And um, it was heartbreaking to see um, that happen. Um, however, it's the right thing to do for the healthcare system. Um, we chose to work in healthcare. We chose to be there to protect other people, to help them. Um, we don't want to do harm to anybody. So it is a helping profession, and. Uh, those of us working in healthcare, we're used to making sacrifices. We're used to um, taking vaccinations, so wearing masks and, and washing our hands, doing all those things. And this is part of, of the tools that, that we need to do. Um, and perhaps one day they'll, they'll list that. But you know, my own personal viewpoint is that anything that, that can protect older people who are vulnerable to, um, to risk because of, of um, people who aren't vaccinated and because of the spreading of diseases, we want to protect um, our older people who are vulnerable as much as possible and other populations that are immune compromised. Uh, so, Dan, with this lifting today of the, the proof of vaccination of the rapid antigen test requirements and uh, the, the universal mask wearing, with the lifting of that is, that, is that it for COVID restrictions? Are they all gone now or are there still any in place? Well, the main, they're mostly gone. The, mo- the main one is the, is the vaccination of staff members. We still have to have um, the two vaccinations and we will be encouraging staff members to do that. We're still doing hand washing. Hand washing is one of those standards in long-term care that is critically important. Uh, we're still going to be uh, maintaining our infection prevention control measures. Uh, just generally, we've developed expertise in that in the past number of years, even more expertise than we had before the pandemic. So there are some things that are still um, there and so those orders in particular, the big one is around vaccinations uh, for staff members. Um, that won't change, but everything else is back to normal. The, and this is great timing uh, with the long weekend, with um, Passover and Easter and other holidays and barbecue season coming up. Um, it's going to be great to see um, large scale gatherings like we'd never seen before, not, not since the pandemic started. Do you get a sense? Does it feel different, or, or get a sense of like you said, it's kind of uh, feels like things are back to normal? Absolutely. I think this is going to be you know, a joyous moment when people start to understand um, what the impact is, um, what they've been through, and that um, we're getting some of those freedoms that we didn't have before. And just, you know, you think about it, um, you know, it was really, in particular, the, the older people living in long-term care that were mostly impacted by those restrictions and what they've had to go through um, over these years. 
and uh, family members being being separated from them. Even though they have, we were able to visit them, they still had to go through the testing. Now they don't have to do that, and I think um, it's going to be such a welcome relief for so many people. Yeah, I still remember going to a care home. It was the, the day, it was on a weekend, and it was the first day that a case had been detected in a long-term care home. And I still remember that day. It seems like it was a long time ago, but uh, we had no idea what was about to, what was about to unfold. Yeah, if we had only known. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, Dan, thank you so much for bringing us up to date on this and uh, telling us more about what the lifting looks like. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Anytime, Jill. Take care. You will probably remember, it was back a few years, tinkering with liquor laws in this province, coming up with ways to have happy hour to perhaps sell wine and beer in grocery stores. There was a lot of debate, a lot of feedback. It's been a while since that was taking place, but now one Vancouver City councillor says it's time we relook some of this policy. And Mike Klassen is joining us to talk a little bit more about that. Thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. Good afternoon. So this is something I know, it's a provincial law and a provincial jurisdiction, but what role does the City of Vancouver, what role does Council play in this? So the City of Vancouver has the ability to regulate whether it allows um, these licenses to uh, Vancouver. So uh, a little bit of the history, back in 2015, the the, uh, provincial government decided that it was going to allow um, the sale of these, um, uh, what were, were called BCVQA licenses, they were exclusively for uh, British Columbia wine. And um, a number of um, sort of the grocery store chains ended up uh, purchasing some of these licenses and deciding where they thought they would be best used. And um, several municipalities uh, took them out. I think initially it was South Surrey and Langley. Uh, but now we have over a dozen um, cities around British Columbia, Prince George, Kelowna, uh, Penticton, City North Vancouver. Most recently, um, the city of Coquitlam has a fabulous uh, wine on shelf uh, uh, experience uh, at a Save on Foods there. So uh, we're talking about um, taking uh, maybe a couple of those licenses and uh, trying them out in the city of Vancouver. So how would that work? So essentially, um, these licenses are uh, just for BC VQA wine, and and so they are um, allow um, a, a big variety of those wines, and there are thousands of SKUs now um, that would be placed right in the store. So when you go in and you want to buy your fruits and vegetables, your staples, the ingredients for an, uh, an evening meal, uh, you can walk right up to the grocery store, uh, gro- grocery store shelf and pick a, a nice uh, a BC red or a BC white or a rosé or maybe a bottle of bubbly to, to, to celebrate. Uh, but it's all going to be there right on the shelf. You're not going to have to go to another store. You're not going to have to go to a second cashier. You can go right into the grocery store and, and, uh, and just buy a bottle of wine with, uh, that you can have with your meal. And so would it would it require a lot to, as far as changing it to make it? Because you're right. And if you go to other places in Metro Vancouver, and I just I thought of one example, there's a, a Save on Foods in Tawasin. They purchased the license of a wine shop on the on the other side, another part of the mall. And, and exactly like you just said, you can purchase it with whatever you're buying at Save on Foods. As long as the cashier is 19, the cashier can ring you through and, and off you go. So would, what would it take then? Or would it is it a, a very big process to make that change? So that's what could happen in Vancouver? 
Well, I'm hoping that it's not going to be. A, uh, we've actually asked for um, staff to come back by the end of May with uh, uh, an update as to how we do this. I think that we could potentially have uh, wine on grocery store shelves um, later this year. Obviously, the groceries themselves are going to have to figure out how the space is going to happen. There probably are going to be some staffing um, uh, considerations. Uh, as you mentioned, they have to be in order to sell at the at the cash register. They have to be 19 plus. I think they also have to have the serving it right certificate, which is uh, not very hard to get, but it's just a, an important requirement to make sure that uh, you know people are uh, who are selling and the people who are buying uh, are uh, allowed to do so. Right. Is this something you hear a lot about, or that people uh, you get the impression people would like to see this changed? I think what people have been looking for, and I mean, I I really am loath to use the the, the no fun city moniker, but Vancouver has had a, a long history of um, throwing cold water on just the ability to just, um, uh, you know, uh, allow people to have a little bit more fun. Um, and the the decision that was made back in 2017 to disallow, um, you know, wine on grocery store shelves in, you know, the province's biggest city, probably its biggest tourist attraction, um, you know, it, it just made us look a little bit smaller. And I think this is just a part of a, an overall uh, trend for our council to, to create a more vibrant environment for our city. Of course, you know, we're uh, just about to discuss um, the responsible use of alcohol in, our, in some of these uh, public plazas that we created. Uh, the park board, of course, is coming forward with some um, new policy to allow responsible use of alcohol in um, on uh, parks and beaches. So I think it's just, uh, again, I think it's just a, a way of just, and I, you know, I use the phrase sometimes, just treating, uh, treating people like adults and, and and allowing them to be responsible. This is, and remember, these are sort of premium wines. They're you know they're not uh, you know bag in a box uh, experience. Uh, you know, people who are going to want to just um, drink for their own sake are going to find other ways of doing that. But this is this is a place where you're going to be able to get a, a really nice uh, bottle of wine uh, that will uh, pair with a meal. Because it does seem strange, like you said, that, that this rule is in place in for Vancouver grocery stores where you can go to a farmer's market, uh, the, the Riley Park market, which is a huge market. You can buy craft beer, you can buy Okanagan wine, you can buy vegetables, you can walk around and purchase it and, and then go about your day. The fact that you can do that, but you can't buy a bottle of wine in a grocery store does seem a little strange. Yeah, you put your finger on it. I think we just need to look at the policy with clear eyes and say to ourselves, is this something that um, is, is something that we want? And again, it's about the responsible use of, of, of alcohol, but it, it, it goes a long way to supporting our local economy. Uh, we've got, um, you know, I think a very strong a multi-billion dollar um, uh, wine industry in British Columbia. Uh, wine is grown on Vancouver Island, the Okanagan, as we know, and other parts. And uh, the wines are getting pretty darn good. So um, why uh, go abroad when you can have really great tastes that are local? And uh, the nice thing about these stores is they often put in staff that can answer your questions. So you're asking yourself, you know, what's going to go with my, you know, my salmon dinner tonight? Uh, they'll have a, a few tips on, on what would be a good pairing. And I, I think that just makes it a much better experience. Uh, you mentioned the plazas as well, that the, that's coming back to council for consideration also. And people will likely be familiar with the plazas where you can sit and uh, enjoy an alcoholic beverage if you choose. It looks like, though, there's only one new site, which is, is a, I think it can be an 18th, about a block from a returning site. The, the rest all appear to be returning sites. So was there any appetite to expand that program? 
I think that there will be uh, my my experience with the plazas themselves is it's important to have a steward, um, you know, whether it's a local restaurant or a local um, you know person or group who are willing to make sure that, you know, that the plaza and, you know, city staff can't have eyes on it 24-7. So I think that some of the BIAs have stepped up realizing that they're great gathering places. I mean, I see people sitting in there just chilling out, you know, reading a book or, or just meeting with friends or having a coffee. It's, I think it just gives that additional uh, public space and a, a place for people to enjoy their surroundings. And uh, when the weather is much better, too, it's just a, just a great place uh, to connect with the community. All right. And Councillor, I, I just did want to ask you as well. I, I know we've been talking about these policies and these are policies that are coming to Council for a vote a bit later on in the month. But your thoughts as well on the removal of the tents on East Hastings and kind of how that unfolded? Um, well, I, I know that uh, Mayor Sim uh, was uh, out there talking as well as city staff, uh, 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 Chief Palmer and uh, Chief, the Fire Chief uh, Fry. I think um, uh, I think that the staff there did a lot of work and were very uh, trying to be as respectful as possible uh, in the face of the huge threat that we, we saw that was happening there with, with fires, uh, blockading. And I mean, really, what was going on there could not continue. Um, uh, you know, I'm very supportive of uh, what our uh, city staff and, uh, and the police that supported them did to, to try and make sure that we create a, a safer um, community there. All right. Uh, Councillor Mike Klassen, thank you so much for joining us today. You bet. Thanks, Jill. Bye-bye. There are some amazing stories being shared today and uh, tomorrow as well, which is Green Shirt Day. That is a legacy of humble Broncos player Logan Boulay, who donated his organs after that tragic bus crash. And I know we all remember that day and uh, remember hearing from his family and uh, just remembering just what a difference that made to so many other families. We wanted to talk a little bit more about organ donation and how important it is. Joining us to do that is Naomi Lee, a heart recipient. Naomi, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Can you take us back to to kind of when you first started to realize that something was wrong? I know you were really young at the time when that happened. So can you take yeah. us back to, to kind of how, what you went through? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was the beginning of the COVID pandemic. I was 19 years old and, uh, I caught the flu and my siblings had it. My parents had it. They all got better, but I unfortunately got sicker and sicker. And at what point did you know that, that something was up and it wasn't just the flu? Mm. Um, I was getting shortness of breath and chest pain and, Um, I just knew that something was a little bit off. I didn't know what exactly was off, but um, I just knew that I should probably get it checked out. And uh, to throw in as well, I mean, the the not knowing what's wrong, but like you said, it's kind of the beginning of the pandemic. So all of these other things are are Mm -hmm. happening and all of these other unknowns that had to be really frightening. It was. It was a really tough time. Uh, so when you you went in to to check this out to find out what it was that was wrong with you, how did things unfold from that point? Um, so I went to the emergency department, my local emergency department, and they diagnosed me with pneumonia and inflammation in my heart, so viral myocarditis. And um, they wanted to admit me, but I was like, "What? Like 
can I can I not? Can I just go home? And they're like, uh, we really don't recommend that because you're very sick. And so I was like, okay. So um, I stayed overnight, and the next day my heart stopped. Hmm. Um, my dad was there with me, and uh, um, so I don't really, I don't remember this part, but he was just telling me, yeah, my heart had stopped. They had to uh, do CPR and shock me back and um, put me on life support. Which must have been absolutely uh, the the trauma trauma for your family and going from because you were from what I understand too before getting what what you thought was the flu uh, you were an active healthy nothing nothing wrong with you nineteen uh, year old yeah yep not a single heart condition. <laughs> Wow. So that all happened. Your family, I can imagine, must have been beside themselves and, and your heart stopped. So what happened next? Um, after that, I was in a medically induced coma for um, a few days and they um, sent me to St. Paul's Hospital, which is the heart center of BC. And uh, from there, I was put on the I was put in the pre-transplant clinic. So they knew that my heart condition was really serious, but they were trying to hold off on transplant. Um, but unfortunately, I was getting sicker and sicker and sicker, and I ended up needing an LVAD, which stands for Left Ventricular Assist Device. So um, I had that machine implanted, and uh, it basically does the job of the heart. And um, I had it for 10, 10 months and three days, and then I got the call for my new heart. Wow. How was it? What was it like when you realized that that was the, the kind of road you were on, though, that this this machine, thankfully, this machine mm-hmm. w- was something that they could give you and it would pump. It would it would do what your heart couldn't do after, after your heart was damaged. But it's not mm-hmm. a final solution. It's not a long term solution. What what was it like for you when you were when you were coming to the realization that that you were going to need a heart transplant? Oh, um, it was hard. It was really hard. I, when I found out that I needed a heart transplant, I was, I was devastated. And I just, I thought that life couldn't go on after. And I just couldn't see myself um, being happy or healthy or anything. And, and so I reached out to people. I reached out to other heart transplant recipients. And when I heard that they have families and they work and they enjoy life, I was like, what? Um, and from then on, I was like, I'm ready. Like I need, I'm ready to move on. I'm ready to get this heart. Don't get me wrong. I was still terrified, but, um, I knew that life could go on and that life could be full and beautiful after a heart transplant. And so it gave me a lot of hope. And it must have been, though, I, what a turning point to, to go from. And I think it would be so normal to, to feel all of those things that you were feeling and then realizing that this was what was the solution was. What was it like then when you got the news that there was a match that you were going to be getting a transplant? Oh, um, so my my heart transplant nurse, she called me on um on a Thursday morning, I believe, and uh, I, I don't know, I don't know why, I just didn't expect her to say it, and, and so I just was like, hey, how's it going, and she's like, oh, how are you doing, and everything, and then she's like, we have a heart for you, and, and like, before I knew it, like, goodness, just like, tears were like, falling out of my eyes, and I was like, what is happening, I was so overwhelmed, um, I was, I was scared, I was excited, um, I was really sad knowing that there was a family out there whose uh, loved one had passed away and 
man, the emotions are just so overwhelming and they're so big and there are so many of them in that moment. Yeah, I've often wondered about that too, that it must be different in that you want to be so happy and you know that this is the thing that's going to let you live. But when it's something like a heart, it's not not a living kidney donor or something that that you know there's this sadness that comes with it as well. Yes, yes. I think it initially felt a lot like guilt. Um, but, you know, a lot of therapy, a lot of thinking through it. And, and I think the guilt, it subsided. And it, there's a lot of sadness, though, knowing that, um, like, organ donation, it's like two sides of a coin. You know, there's like so much hope and there's life and it's wonderful. Um, and then there's also a family who's really, really grieving and has faced something terrible. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a tough one for sure. Do you remember what it was like when you went in for your surgery and when you woke up having been having a new heart put into your yeah. chest? Yes. Um, so my mom was in the ICU with me when I woke up and uh, I still had the tube in my throat. So I gestured to her that I hated it and that I wanted it out. Um, but yeah, I think one of the main things that I noticed was just how hard my heart was pumping because for the past year I guess a little over a year my heart just wasn't working and I couldn't really feel my pulse much so to have a new heart that was super strong um, beating super hard was crazy I could feel it throughout my entire body. Wow and what was it like then how did your life change now after a pretty major surgery and coming through that mm-hmm. and recovering what, what what was it like the recovery and and kind of getting your life back yeah um recovery went really really smoothly um, I was out of the hospital in I think 10 days um, and I did a lot of cardiac rehab took my dog for a lot of walks um, and I slowly return to school. So currently I'm only taking two classes, um, but I'm hoping to slowly each semester increase by a class until I'm back to full time. Um, I feel like my life has changed a lot for sure. I think I uh, move slower and um, and I try not to be so anxious and I realize that life is short, that every single day is a gift. Um, so yeah, I think my life Certainly. No, I know my life has changed for the better. Um, But yeah, it's just a matter of adjusting to my new normal. And yeah, but it's been really good. It sounds uh, sounds amazing because I'm guessing there would have been a whole lot of things being on the LVAD machine that you couldn't do. Yes. Yes. I love swimming. Swimming (laughs) is one of my favorite things. Now I'm a swim instructor, but uh, yeah, no, no, no swimming, no pool. Um, When I showered, I had to tape up my stomach because the LVAD is um, like half internal, half external. So there's like a tube connecting. Um, yeah, it's it's this whole thing. I could go into it and talk for a long time, but I no, no, that's, it's, I find your, the story is fascinating to get to this perspective on this. Um, what does it mean to you then? Because, and one of the reasons we're, we're doing this is to talk more about organ donation awareness, uh, tomorrow being a green shirt day. What, what kind of message or what does it mean to you now with this perspective when we talk about organ donation? Yeah, um, organ donation, it saves lives and it's, it's just incredible to think that one person who can't use their organs anymore can save the lives of up to eight people. And 
it's a really, I think it is a really tough topic to think about because nobody likes to think about um, about losing loved ones or about um, your own mortality, right? But um, yeah, the reality is is that if someone doesn't need their organs anymore, they can make an incredible impact. And see, my life's not only changed, but it's my family members and it's my community. And um, yeah, I, I just I couldn't be more thankful for my second chance. And yeah, that's all thanks to somebody's somebody and their family's really, really selfless and gracious decision to donate organs. Does it make you think about it as well in that the the moment when a family does have to make that decision and uh, such a stressful time for that family, a stressful time for your family, uh, you waiting Mm -hmm. on that list that, that, uh, like you said, nobody really likes to talk about it, but it is so important that people know what your wishes are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the big things is that um, a lot of people, so I just, I had read a stat earlier that... um, like ninety, around ninety percent of British Columbians are totally for organ donation, but only about thirty percent have signed up. Um, and the thing about signing up is that um, it kind of gives the your, your loved ones peace about um, and a, like a decision that's really really hard to make in a really really painful time. But um, to honor that decision of um, the the loved one who's passed their desire to um, save other people's lives is, I mean, it's never easy, but I think maybe it'll make a slight, a really tough decision a little bit easier. So, yeah. For sure. And uh, Naomi, do you feel like like you have this, not obligation, I don't think is the right word, but do you feel like you need to to go out of your way now to to live the best life you possibly can to to pay tribute to this person or to to thank this person and to to uh, to, you know, acknowledge that this person, the reason that you're here is because of this? Yes, 100 percent. I I feel like um I live my life now just, well, obviously knowing that it's a huge gift to be here, but I know that um, through my life, my my organ donor also lives on in a way, and I want to honor their decision um, just by taking care of my body physically, taking care of um, just doing good self-care and um, just living life and, like, you know... Um, just living life to the fullest and I mean don't get me wrong there's still really hard times but living in each moment and realizing that each moment is a gift and you know if I'm feeling lazy instead of just sitting down to like actually go up and get out for that walk and you know like um, just take the best care of myself so I can also take the best care of my donor and our, our heart my donor and I our heart take the best care of it possible. All right. Well, Naomi, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. I really appreciate you sharing your story. Yeah, no, thank you for having me.